Good morning, everybody. This morning we're going to read from Matthew chapter 20. Now, if you're in church and you've been given a Bible, it's on page 987, 987. And if you're watching from home or somewhere else, it's on the screen. So Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to start at verse 1. Jesus says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last only worked for one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, am I not being, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I'm generous? So the first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this uh, morning we continue our uh, series that we're doing this January, answering those questions that popped up in our survey. If you're, um, if you're tuning in for the first time or someone sends you the link, welcome. Uh, or if you're in the building after a while, good to have you back post-Christmas and New Year. Um, we did a survey at the end of last year. We asked people the question, what would make the world a better place? Simple question, really. Um, and people had lots of answers. We had about 70 answers. About a third to a half of them were non-St. Stephen's people. What was really interesting is that generally, actually, the answers grouped themselves into four pretty clear categories. Around those four categories, we built four questions. Last week, does more tolerance and less judgment equal a better world? And that's what David Robertson uh, spent his time reflecting on in, in the talk. If you haven't seen it, you can go back and look at the video from last week and, and, and hear what he had to say. Uh, and there's two more coming in the next two weeks. This week, the question is, does a slower-paced life equal a better world? Because actually, one of the repeating responses people had was, less busy. 
less busy. Uh, or slower, slower paced life. That was actually a phrase that a couple of responses used. Uh, does a slower paced life equal a better world? And so that's the, word, that's the question that I've been tasked to kind of reflect on. And uh, we're going to do that. Let me pray for us and then, and then we'll launch into it. Uh, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this time reflecting on this question and pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts and minds, showing us the truth and granting us the, the, the ability to accept it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a picture up here on the screen. If you can't see it up the back, I apologise. The little blurb at the back says, at the bottom says, I'm not a workaholic, I just work to relax. It was in the New Yorker a few years ago. It's got a guy, uh, he looks so New York actually, he looks kind of um, some kind of merchant banker guy. Anyway, he's tapping away at his keyboard on the beach. I'm not a workaholic, workaholic I work to relax. And I guess he's capturing what I think is a very common question, a very common struggle, actually, what I'd describe as the modern problem of being too busy, of a sense that life really just is, is full beyond our capacity often at times. And, and, of course, the picture captures maybe a paid work and the, the crazy hours that some particular professions, but lot, I think growing number of professions require from their workers and the way it kind of consumes different parts of our life, right? But actually being busy is more than that. Uh, I think it's not irregular to meet someone who's busy, not because they're paid to be busy necessarily, but they're busy uh, because of all the other things that are part of their life, the expectations of their life. Uh, there are children in my daughter's year in uh, Willoughby Public School who do, you know, it's not uncommon to hear of them doing four, five, six activities after school during a week. And, and so this co contributes to this experience of being overly busy. Uh, and so busyness or that experience of life where you really just don't have time to breathe is very rare. And I think, in fact, that's why we really enjoy this couple of weeks often in January, isn't it? It's when there's a sense in which, oh, I, I can breathe because everything stops. Uh, it's mandated to stop in a sense. And so I think this is a really, really important question that people ask and it is reflective of our situation. To have a slower-paced life, well, will that make the world better? There's, there's a sense in which life has got busier as time has gone on, actually. It's implicit in the question, and I think it's implicit in our understanding of life, that maybe, you know, 50, 60 years ago, the world was slower, and was there something better about that? Well, I think the answer to that question Maybe you intuit the answer is automatically yes. A slower pace of life makes a better world. And, and I want to say, oh, interestingly, as I've reflected on what the Bible has to say on this, the answer is yes and no. In fact, the answer is maybe it's the wrong measurement for what makes a better world. That's that's, that's, the, the Bible's answer is not what we would automatically ex expect. Now, before I launch into that, I think it's worth saying that there are actually real dangers of overwork, and, and our desire to slow it down, my clickers, I've turned it off, that doesn't help, uh, I think it'll work now, Sue, yep, there you go, 
I think our desire to slow it down, is there's something biblical about that, actually? I think there's a need to slow it down. I think the intuition that a slower-paced life equals a better world, there's truth to that. The WHO released a report on overwork. In 2016, it estimated nearly a million people died of heart disease and stroke simply related to overwork. And that's not all of heart disease and stroke, but simply related to overwork. In Japan, there's a word to capture people who die from overwork. It's so common in that, in that kind of cultural matrix. Uh, in fact, they said that the WHO report said that the number of people who've died related to overwork in heart disease and stroke numbers has increased 30% since the year 2000. So I guess the data backs up some of our sense that it used to be less busy. Life used to be less packed in and stressed. So there's, there's a truth to it. And there's a physiological reality that overwork is damaging to us. It places strain on your body, particularly your heart and your blood pressure. But it's not just a physiological challenge, of course. It's relational, isn't it? I mean, we can all testify to moments when experiencing it. We've seen someone experiencing it. As a pastor, I, I regularly see it, especially in Sydney churches where most people are overworked or would claim to be busy, not just paid busy, but any kind of busy. And the flow-on effects to all of their relationships, whether it's family, whether it's um, friendships, whether it's your church life, there are flow-on reflect. You wake up and you have a sense of dislocation. You, you, you sense that your relationships are poorer as a result of that season generally. So there's a relational, but there's also an emotional challenge. Most psychologists would say, who, who specialise in resilience and burnout, so if you live at 100% of your life all the time, the red zone, 100, even... I mean, it doesn't exist, of course, but the sportsman's adage, 110% of your life, all the time, you will burn out. You can't actually manage that. You're meant to, you're meant to run at 85% and then increase into that red zone every now and then, not just be sitting there all the time. Uh, in fact, some psychologists suggest that part of our resilience problem is that some people are in that red zone all the time. And so there is real damage from overwork. And as I said, I think that what we've seen there in, in kind of the st cultural statistics is, is reinforced, in fact, is first mentioned in the Scriptures, which the Bible, which actually says there is a legitimate place for rest. There's a legitimate place for rest. So in Genesis chapter 2, where God has just created the world, the writer of Genesis, Moses, says, "...by the seventh day God had finished the work he'd been doing." And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. He, here it is, right at the start of the Bible, God rests. Isn't that extraordinary? Two chapters in, and we have this experience, this description of God resting from his work. Part of the pattern of God in activity is God in rest as well. And in Exodus 20, Moses is conveying the Ten Commandments to Israel. He comes to the commandment about the Sabbath. He says, six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter nor your male or female servant. This is a, this is a really fascinating insight. You think, oh, what does the Bible really have to say about our daily rhythms? Lots, actually. It says you need to have rest. In fact, God mandates it. I love this passage because God's mandating it not just for the Israelites and not just for the men. 
He's mandating it for women as well as men. He's mandating it for young as well as old. He's mandating it for not just the Israelites, but their servants, their slaves as well. You, you know, we think our oh, workers' rights, that's a product of kind of Marxist ideology in the 19th century. But workers' rights, the concern for the worker, right, is right there back at the start when God is establishing his nation of Israel. He, he, has a, he has a concern for people because he sees that it's part of the nature of our creation to actually rest. And so there is a, there's a valid desire to want to slow it down. There's a need to actually pause, and that's a good thing. So when you think of our question, does a slower-paced life equal a better world, the answer on one level is yes, actually, because that's how we're made, says the Bible. The Bible's affirming that instinct in us to slow things down when we feel like everything's getting overwhelming. But it's interesting, I said it's not as simple as that, and it's not because I think a slow-paced life isn't everything. In fact, I think that work, you could say that hard work is actually very good. We see this even more so, actually, now in the 20th and 21st century than we ever have before. Workers now have the opportunity to really pursue their passions and their desires in their work in a way that you couldn't in the, you know, the industrialised 19th century because then you just got sent off, to the, off to, the, to the factory and you did what needed to be done. Right? You worked your 10, 12 hours in a, in a factory with high pollution levels. That was just your job. Uh, but now, one of the real blessings actually of modern life is if you're a creative person, you can, you can do a degree or get training and be an interior designer and expend yourself in a creative field. There's a goodness about work, especially now, that's got to be affirmed. Actually, you find a job that can affirm your passions and your desires. That's not wrong to want to work that way. And actually, that, that sense has got to mitigate against the tendency to just want to slow everything down. Hard work has its place. I mean, hard work just doesn't have a place because it reaffirms who you are, like as some kind of internally um, affirming experience. Hard work is good as well because it serves people. I mean, you think of our medicos who sit in hospitals at the moment and in doctor's surgeries and they care for and serve people. That's hard work, but it's essential and good work. So to just say, oh, you need to slow it down doesn't account for the, the complexity of work. That work, hard work, can be really good for other people, actually. And that necessity says, the idea that I should just slow my whole life down is, is not necessarily a good thing. Now, again, I think the Bible just beautifully captures this nuance um, I think sometimes we have a sense of reading the Bible as something that's just meant to help us know how to talk to God. Right? I mean, that's, that's one of its primary purposes. But the Bible is God's manual for doing life as his creation. And so it has really great insights in all parts of life. Here's the example from Genesis 2 again. So we read this verse before, but I just want you to note something. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So, on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. He doesn't, he doesn't stop halfway through the job and then have a rest. He completes the task that's there for him. Right? So, God is working. In John 5, verse 17, Jesus says to the listening crowd, My Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. 
That, that's really interesting. Yes, God has this moment of rest on the seventh day. The Bible affirms, actually, that the world exists and operates and, and actually is the good things in the world are part of God's constant work in the world. Uh, Colossians tells us that it's constantly being sustained by Jesus. It's not like God just wound the clock up on the first six days and then just let creation go and he's kind of sitting back on his cabana next to the pool watching it all run out. No, he's constantly at work in the world. Work is, work is good and the Bible is kind of trying to capture that. Uh, the other thing that the Bible captures is, is the necessary pattern built into life. So here's Proverbs 10, uh, one of many proverbs actually on the question of work. And in that, the writer in Proverbs says, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. The, 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 the writer of the proverb is bringing out a reality that's built into God's creation, which is that you work to receive an outcome. Uh, things don't just fall into your lap. God's actually created us to labor to receive some kind of outcome in life. So to just say, oh, slow-paced life equals a better world, it's, that's too simple because it doesn't account for the way that the world is created. It's our common experience, whether you're a believer or not. This is how the world works. I think, in fact, actually, when I said this is a modern problem, I think you'd say it's a modern Western problem, the question of busyness and slowness of life. Because if you're in a village in Sri Lanka and you get up at 5 a.m. and you have breakfast and you go off to the field and you work your field and you come home and you have dinner and you go to bed, you, you can see this principle at play. You're working it's resulting in the food that you eat and it results in the money that you will earn to support your family directly. You sell it at the marketplace. But because in Western life, often we do these jobs which are so separate from their final outcome, right? You, you're beavering away, but you might not necessarily see the real world implication of your labor. You can think that your labor is pointless, but actually work achieves something and something beneficial for people. And that's why work is good, actually. Hard work is good. So to just say, let's slow it all down, negates all this thing. The other thing I think that's true about um, slowing it down is that sometimes we can conceive of leisure in selfish ways. We can say to ourselves, I need to slow it down because I need to have me time. It's a great word, isn't it? It's a great phrase. It's a common way of understanding slowing it down. Leisure is about me. And of course, that creates a whole kind of cultural malaise which is, which is very narcissistic. It's a world that's all, all kind of inwardly focused when people conceive of their leisure purely as a me thing. And, and, and leisure, that's, it's not sustainable, that form of rest either, that form of slowing it down. When I was, um, this became so abundantly clear to me when I first had young kids, those of you who had them or having them will be able to kind of understand th this particular experience. Because when you were, certainly it's true for me, it might not have been true for you, but if it, I suspect it rings a bell for many. When you're a young adult, you know, you, you suddenly have money, well, certainly more than, than you might have when you were a student or something like that. You suddenly have more disposable income, you have more time, you, you, you travel more, so you might work hard for 48 weeks of the year, and then you've got four weeks and you just kind of You've saved it all up, you spend it on a great holiday, you know, you just, you, you splurge, you have a great time away, right? It's a wonderful holiday. You come back, you feel refreshed, revitalized, you've, you've done your January thing, and then you're ready to launch into another year of hard labor. 
That's how we think of leisure. But then you have a child and you realise, for want of better description, that your holidays are now like elongated childcare. And it's the most, it's the genuinely the most frustrating experience the first few years. Is how, I'm seeing parents nodding because they know I'm, I'm speaking the truth here. I'm, I'm testifying. It is genuinely the most ex- frustrating experience. And it's, I, for me, it took me maybe three years to come to terms. And it was, in fact, a breakthrough conversation. A friend of mine said, he said, who'd been a couple of years ahead of me in this, this personal learning process, he said, I've come to understand, don't call them holidays anymore, call them family time. Family time. I came to terms with a new vision of leisure. And I reflect back, actually, on my rest, and I thought, maybe I particularly had started to see my rest as a very self-oriented moment. This is why slowing it down is not necessarily the answer for a better world. It could just result in a more narcissistic world. Uh, That's not necessarily the answer either. It's interesting, isn't it, as we've talked about this? The other thing I think about with leisure is that we're not very good at resting. we, we're always, I came up with this saying at 7.45, I'll use it, we're good at measuring our leisure. Right? We're good at measuring leisure. Uh, what do I mean? Oh, have, has anyone got one of these? It's, um, it's, a, uh, it's a sleep app. Anyone ever gone down this path? Yes, where you put it on your phone and, or your watch and you go to sleep and you have a really great night's sleep. And you look at your, your device in the morning, you think, how good was my sleep? And it says, oh, you got like six hours of quality sleep. You think, fire, I failed at sleeping, you know. You, you've, you've gone into this moment of rest and leisure and you've woken up more anxious than you went before. It's, it's, I mean, it's a flippant example, but we have, this, we have a growing tendency even to measure our leisure time in terms of efficiency, <laughs> you know. How much exercise did I get while I was on holidays? Uh, you know, how many people did I see? Uh, you know, how many jobs around the house did I get done? It's because the question of slowing down our life is not that simple. It's actually not a case of how much you do or don't do. I think it's a case of why you do it. Busyness is not the primary issue. It's the symptom of the underlying question of why we are busy in the first place. And and if you're busy for the wrong reasons, it will pollute your rest. If you're busy for the wrong reasons, it will pollute your ability to slow down and what you do when you slow down. There's a great article in SMH which was written pre-pandemic. I think it's still true. They're talking about our addiction to busyness. Here's what the author said. Uh, They wrote, there is an absolute addiction to busyness. There are an increasing number of people who wear their busyness like a badge of honour. That is so true. I don't know if it's true about you, but it's true about me. Sometimes I think I'm telling someone I'm busy because I'm just a bit worried that they think I don't do anything. Badge of honour. They go on to write later, aligning our self-worth with working hard or our desire to receive praise work against us to stop and rest when we need to. It's true, isn't it? They describe them. They're not a Christian They're just describing the experience, and they're saying, actually, the problem is not busyness, it's a thing that's driving us to be busy. They're saying, we're busy because busyness gives us a sense of being worth something, of being valuable, of our life meaning something. 
of us contributing something of worth and value to this place. And actually, because our busyness is so tied to that sense of worth and value, we find it hard to actually stop because what does that mean to our worth and value in those moments when we pause? Now, if the writer of this article in the SMH is right, and I, I have a sense on my own personal experience of this that there's some truth there. You see, simply saying, I'm going to slow my life down is not going to do it because what's going to happen is your times of slowness are going to be anxiety-ridden too. It's not going to result in a better life, a better world. It's going to result in people who are anxious. At best case, people who are narcissistic because they're just focused on themselves. And I think, I think this is actually where what the Bible has to say is so helpful. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt slow your life down or thou shalt work hard, although we've seen that there are those implications. The Bible actually goes to deal with it in a different way. I think what's really interesting, actually, a question about this, this attitude to um, why we work is, ask yourself this, if you're a workaholic, okay, if you're someone who works hard in a, in a job, I mean, unfortunately, you're the few people I'm looking at today, but if you're online, you're listening, right, you're a workaholic, you love that job, 14 hours, you're energised by it, right? But then if you come home and you think, just, oh, I've got to do the dishes, put the kids to bed, vacuum, clean... I want to ask you, why is it that though you're in, this, you're in this workplace where there's stress, there's accountability, there's people who are, who are not nice, but that energises you, right? But you can't come home and do the dishes or, you know, vacuum the house or wash the clothes or whatever it is, right? If you can't do that, why is that? I suspect it's because one place feeds your sense of worth and value and the other doesn't. I think it's because one place, hey, testimonial, I'm that guy. I'm the guy who will be 14 hours in one workplace, but when it comes to bath and bed, I just have to grit my teeth and get through it. Because one place can feed your sense of worth and value and the other one can't, right? The Bible, though, says something to us. If you're listening in, if you're even here and you've just been mulling on this, I want to say the Bible says something very important and it goes to the root issue here. And that's why I chose the passage from, from uh, Matthew 20. It's a strange passage on one level. It's a little parable that Jesus tells. I'm not going to spend a lot of time thinking about it. But he, here's the outline. Jesus is telling stories. He often tells stories to make a point. Okay? And he says, here's a guy who owns a vineyard. Uh, he's a landowner. He, he needs to hire some workers to work on the vineyard. He goes to the marketplace. He hires some people. They... They say, great. So he says, go, I'll pay you for your work. They go. Then he comes back in the middle of the day. He hires some more people who are standing around in the marketplace. They go. They... Then he goes at five o'clock, Jesus says. So it's pretty much the end of the day. He finds some people. These people are clearly not motivated. They've got no initiative because they've just been standing around the whole day. In fact, he asks him, why are you not working? He says, because no one offered us a job. They didn't bother to find one. They've just been standing around. He says, go and work. I'll pay you. But of course, the twist at the end of the story is, that he then goes and pays them all the same amount of money. He pays the first one, the one that he negotiated, he pays them a denarius, which is like a, wor a day's worth of labour. So it's fair on that level. But then he pays the people who came at five o'clock, who probably did like an hour, half an hour's worth of work, the same amount of money. And so, so helpfully at the end, he says, are you envious that I'm generous? Are you envious that I'm generous? 
This parable is so clever. Jesus is just, he's not trying to teach heaps. He's just trying to teach one thing. He says, God deals on the basis of generosity, not merit. We're living in a world that deals on the basis of merit. That's why it drives us to work so hard. That's why our worth is. That's why worth and work are so mixed up, because we're constantly using it to merit ourselves somewhere, to give us a sense of enoughness, right? But God doesn't deal that way, says Jesus. In fact, he just finishes with his last line in verse 16. So the last will be the first, and the first will be last. I don't think God's going to line everyone up in an order. I don't know, we'll find out. But I don't think he's going to line everyone up in an order and literally just reverse the order. I think what Jesus is saying, you live on the basis of the first to be first and the last to be last, so therefore I need to be first. But God doesn't work that way. The kingdom of God is not based on are you the best person in the room, the most able or most meritorious person? God's kingdom is offered just out of generosity. Just out of generosity. Now, here's the thing. I think we hate this story. We hate this story, don't we? It just does not feel fair. But my question to you is, why do you think that you are the first workers in the story? That's where our heart goes, right? We think, I would have been the guy who said yes at the start, the start of the day. I would have signed up to a good deal. Why do you think you're that? When I was at school, I played rugby uh, for my school. And I was, I was pretty good. I trained with the first and I was running on with the seconds and so I was. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't going to play for Australia or anything, but I was pretty good. After school, I decided I'm going to keep playing. So I went to play at West Harbour. West Harbour is in Burwood, which is where I used to live. The thing about West Harbour is it got a whole heap of islanders come to play for West Harbour. And as the, as the chuckles, I sense, can tell, islanders are physically well-built to play rugby. They have better skills. They're faster than me. They're bigger than me. They hit harder, much harder than me. And I thought, you know, I went there thinking, oh, look, I won't get in the first team, but I'll get in the team. I ended up being a reserve in the lowest team in the competition. You just, it's, it's, the, it's a classic, you know, big fish, small pond, small fish, big pond experience. This parable is prompting you to say, why do you think you're the first? You're probably not. You think there's someone more meritorious than you in this room? There probably is. It's always, that's the story of our life. But that, you know what? That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in the kingdom. Because God operates on the basis of generosity, not merit. God operates on the basis of generosity and merit. This is, I think, the most, this is the most unique thing about the Christian faith. There's no other religion that treats our relationship with the divine like this. Every other religion, you have to work your way. In some way, shape, or form, you have to earn something with God, some form of merit. The gospel is grace. It is generosity which gets you in. And Jesus is really challenged us in the story. But of course, his life is a testament to this. The context of this is he's just said, let the children come to me. In other words, he said, in a culture which didn't value children, children, come to me. He said to a rich young ruler just before this in Matthew, who had done all the law and who was wealthy and well-educated, leave it all behind and follow me. And he couldn't do it. It doesn't matter if you're wealthy and well-educated in the kingdom. It's about following Christ. 
It's accepting his generosity. This is the story of Matthew up to this point, and that's what Jesus is driving home. But his life is a testament to that, of course, isn't it? Because he who was abundantly rich became poor. He who was first suffered the death of one who was last on the cross. So that those who are last, like that criminal who dies next to him, can sit in the place of one who's first. And I guess when you, to the extent you believe, that's actually, that's actually how God values you. It will free you from some of the anxiety that drives us either to work really hard or to rest really poorly. And that's the beauty of the gospel. I think what's really interesting as we think about this topic is that the Bible, some people think, oh, there's a question. The Bible's got a specific answer. The Bible's dealing with our hearts. God's word is dealing with our hearts. Because he knows if you fix your heart, if your deepest love is Christ and you know you're the one who loves you most deeply is Christ, the other things, the other things will sort themselves out. What we need, as Pippi said in Spotlight, is not a slower-paced or a fast-paced life, but a grace-based life. Grace-based life. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance that we've had to meet together, think about this. Lord, we recognise our tendency to see our wealth and value in terms of our labour and effort, but thank you that you value us based purely on your own generosity. Would you fill our hearts afresh with an appreciation of this? In Jesus' name, amen.